Thank you so much, Steve. In our consecutive reading of God's Word, we come to a very holy place, to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the pulpit of God's love, where there, by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, it is written. And so when our hearts accuse us that we have not kept the commandments of God, rather that we have continued in sin to this very day, yet we know one who has not sinned, who has gone to the cross to pay for our sins, and who has given us his own righteousness. Notice how often in the passage, already uh, previously at the trial, but still again, he will be declared not guilty, that he is innocent, because it was proper that Jesus would not simply die any old death, that an innocent man would be condemned, and interestingly, a guilty man named Barabbas would be freed. And so it becomes a picture of you and me. You, we, are, we are both Barabbas. Let us uh, read together from, uh, from uh, Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 26. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country, and on, his, on, on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was also written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. 
And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision, indeed, He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after And they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Well, we turn in the blue book now to Psalm 119J. That whole psalm, of course, the longest in the book of Psalms, is all about God's Word, that great source and repository of truth. And this one makes a special uh, case of the uh, Word being that truth by which we live. Uh, Some unusual tunes today. The one we just sang before was from Clement of Alexandria. It's about an 1800-year-old hymn, but not not as much in use now. This psalm, older still. And yet God does not change the God of truth. Let's stand together and sing 119J in the blue book.
Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, we continue in our study of the Ten Commandments with a special emphasis on how they challenge and correct the skewed moral compass of the day. This is a different kind of series, not merely going through all the ins and outs of how this commandment applies, as I have done in the past, and as there are many good resources here, but with a special and extended influence, uh, rather extended application to some of the things of our time. I hope you don't uh, lose patience with that. A little less biblical content than usual, a little more commentary. I hope that you find it's at least helpful to consider the issues of the day in light of the unchanging words from the fire, which I'm about to read to you from Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Amen. Let us pray once more together. Father in heaven, O God of truth, we pray that your truth would truly come once again to set us free. We have become captive to lies, no doubt, as the people of old, having been freed from Egypt, still believed the lies of the land from which they came. So we, who have been redeemed by your grace, we pray that you would set our minds and hearts free, that we would be a people bearing witness to the whole truth and nothing but the truth as it is in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen. Well, it happened in Louisville, Kentucky in 1803, the year before the Lewis and Clark expedition set out. There was a church then on the frontier called the Long Run Baptist Church, and a question arose among their members. If an Indian raiding party were to come along and demand that you tell them if you're hiding children, are you allowed to tell them a lie? 
It proved to be a difficult question, and the controversy began to get heated. In fact, it got so warm that the church in Louisville split into what have since been called the lying Baptists and the non-lying Baptists. I hope that we won't be splitting the church today, but if you see things difficult differently than me, you can meet me out in the parking lot. We're told by the wise King Solomon that in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. And likewise, James says uh, this very striking statement, the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a fire. Fire is a very good and useful thing. You can use it for heating and cooking, but what is useful is also terribly destructive. Fire causes pain. Fire can race out of control so easily. And so in speech, we wield an awesome power. George Whitfield and Adolf Hitler were both speakers. And what a difference came as a result of their words. Now, it's a strange paradox today that we have more communication now than there has ever been in the history of the world. Previous generations would never have believed that all of us could go home and switch on our computers and be instantly in touch with the ends of the earth. And the American family of four nowadays collectively spends over 60 hours a week passively receiving communication. We have more communication than we can possibly manage, and yet it seems at the same time there is less and less truth actually being communicated. Many of you work or will work in a context where you are actually forbidden to speak the truth about various things and Not only is our ability to speak limited, but we are constantly subjected to powerful and persuasive false propaganda. We feel more and more we live in a world drowning in lies, and how are we to conduct ourselves as people of truth? That is our subject today as we turn to this ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. It says a little later in the law, You shall not deal falsely nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely in my name so as to profane the name of your your God. I am the Lord. And all Ten Commandments, of course, reflect the character of God and his work. But the connection here is very easy to see. We are told in the Bible that it it is impossible for God to lie. Our God is repeatedly called the God of truth. Psalm 31, as we will be singing this evening, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Jesus, of course, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when Jesus tells them that he will send his Holy Spirit to them, he calls the Spirit three times the Spirit of truth and says, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Well, by contrast, the Bible often describes the enemy of your souls as a liar, the one in whom there is no truth. He was a liar from the beginning, wrote John. And so, you can't love Jesus who is the truth, without being a lover and upholder of the truth yourself. Nor can you be filled with the Holy Spirit without a desire 
for the truth that he inspires. Jesus calls him the spirit of truth, and when the spirit of God overflows your life, you stop playing fast and loose with the truth. You start to take truth-telling very seriously. Indeed, Jesus says that those who held to his teaching, that they would know the truth and that the truth would set them, th- set them free. And this is very good news for us because none of us are thoroughly honest and we need the freedom, the forgiveness, and the power to change that Jesus gives untruthful people like you and me. Practically speaking, this commandment is designed to protect people from false accusation. It prevents bearing false witness, it says, against your neighbor, that is to say, to his harm, and uh, with this, of course, preventing all false witness in court and perjury. But in all of life, this summarizes a great mass of biblical teaching that we should be truthful people, people that speak the truth in love, people who do not injure others and their good name with our falsehood. The story is told of Philip Neary, that he once gave an unusual penance uh, to a monk who was guilty of gossip. Neary told the young monk to take a feather pillow to the top of the church church tower on a blustery day and release all of its feathers into the wind. And after Neary did so, he then sent him out to collect all the feathers that were now dispersed far and wide over the countryside and to put them back into the pillow. Of course, there was no way for him to do it. He could only collect a few feathers, not enough to remake the pillow, and that was Neary's point. Driven home in an unforgettable way, the sins of the tongue, however easy to commit, are terribly difficult for us to undo. There was a controversy a couple years back at our church's seminary. I was getting emails about this, and people were saying that, and I was being encouraged to read so-and-so's blog communication was going back and forth. Our technology makes it so easy to pass on things and to amplify them. And anyway, I picked up the phone and I called the dean of the seminary and asked him if this rumor were true. No, it's not, he said. And he told me to get in touch with the board chairman who could give me all the details. But before he hung up, he said, you know, you're the only one who actually called to check. Thank you. And I realize that this is just our situation more and more, that things are passed around uh, from person to person, put out on the blogosphere before we even know what's true. Well, under the duties required in the Ninth Commandment, our larger catechism summarizing, again, pulling together passages from all over, says the duty of, uh, lists the duty of preserving and promoting truth and the good name of our neighbor citing the prophecy of Zechariah, among other things, that, there are, that these are the things which you should do, says the word, to speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in the gates for truth, justice, and peace. There is the duty to quench gossip, Psalm 101. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy, says the Lord. And I've included some of the sins forbidden on the back of your bulletin, a long list, uh, quite a long list that has so many scripture references, I, I had to shrink it down to fit it, and I realized you can't even see the scripture references, I'm sorry. But if you look it up online, you will find these scripture references hyperlinked, and that'll save you some time. Uh, better yet, why don't you get your own copy of the Confession and Catechisms with scripture references and start to read through this Bible study 
of what the truth means. Uh, it for, this commandment forbids all prejudicing of the truth and the good name of our neighbors, as well as our own, especially in court, giving false evidence, suborning false witnesses, calling evil good and good evil, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end, or perverting it to a wrong meaning, receiving and countenancing evil reports, and stopping our ears against just defense. Well, as I say, quite a Bible study awaits you if you want to consider what passages of Scripture reinforce and explain this teaching. Mark Twain once said, When in doubt, tell the truth. It'll confound your enemies and astound your friends. And a central theme in the Scriptures, clearly, is the necessity of truth. Truth in our words, truth in our relationship with God, as well as with others. After David had tried to conceal the truth about his sin and it was revealed, David wrote a lovely psalm of confession and explained how God desires truth in the inner man, Psalm 51. Similarly, few things are more important to building and maintaining deep relationships with each other than trust, and few things are more important to trust than honesty. People often lie because of feelings of insecurity, but ironically, there is no way to be secure in our love than honesty. Well, the magazine Child published an article a few years ago called The Truth About Lying, which sounded promising, except the article says, The Old View. Lying, like other issues of morality, was seen only in black and white. Children were taught that all lying was bad, deserving of strict punishment, and frequently reminded that lying will make your nose grow as long as Pinocchio's. The New View. Today, some lying is considered normal. In fact, a child's first few lies, lies are seen as an important step in the development of the self. <laughs> Al Mohler, who brought that to my attention, commented, A culture that encourages parents to see their children's lies as an important step in the development of the self is a culture of institutionalized dishonesty. What is going to become of us if this is the truth? Well, I'll tell you what, and I'll give it to you as was given by Hans Christian Andersen in the story of the emperor's new clothes. Do you guys know that story? Kids, I don't mean the emperor's new groove, a cartoon about a king who becomes a llama. I'm talking about the classic children's story by Hans Christian Andersen. He said there was a king who once... Uh, loved his clothes more than his royal duties. How he appeared, he had a different outfit for every hour of the day. Now, there were some weavers from a distant land who heard about this king's love for fashion and came up with a plan to swindle him. So they came to the town and they convinced him that they could weave the emperor a new suit of clothes in such exquisite and beautifully fine fabric that only the finest people could ever even see it. It's invisible, they say, to those who are unfit for their positions, incompetent, or hopelessly stupid. 
And the vain emperor was quite taken with the idea. Why, he said to himself, if I wore these clothes, I would be able to discover which men in my empire are unfit for their posts. And I could tell wise men from fools. And so he gave the weavers a large sum of money to weave him a new outfit. The men went to work, and the emperor could hardly wait. After a few days, he sent, some of his, he sent his most trusted counselor, rather, to see how it was going. And when the counselor knocked and entered the room, he found two men apparently very hard at work on the looms. But he could see no fabric on the loom. Not so much as a thread. The looms were empty. But the men, the weavers, immediately said, Isn't the cloth exceptional, intricate, beautiful, colorful of such quality? Please don't hesitate to tell us what you think of it. And the counselor stared as long as he dared. Can it be that I'm a fool? He thought. Well, no one must know. Oh, it's beautiful, said the counselor. Enchanting. He peered closely with his spectacles. Such a pattern. What colors. Be sure to tell the emperor. I'll be sure to tell the emperor I'm delighted with it, which he did. So it was with another official. And then the whole town who had heard of this outfit was very excitedly talking about the special new clothes that were being made for the emperor. The emperor himself was anxious because soon he was scheduled to lead a procession through the city and he wanted to wear his new clothes. And so, attended by his officials, the emperor and his courtiers came down to the weaving room and found the two men weaving with might and main without even a thread on the looms. Magnificent, said his officials, already duped. Look, your majesty, what colors, what intricate design, pointing to the empty looms. Am I a fool, the emperor thought? Am I unfit to be an emperor? Oh, it's very lovely, the emperor finally said. It has my highest approval. And his whole retinue likewise stared at the empty looms and praised them, saying, Excellent! Unsurpassed! Well, the morning of the procession, the weavers came and dressed the emperor in his new clothes. And the noblemen, who were to carry the king's magnificent train, each stooped low to the floor, as if to pick up his mantle and raise it high in train behind him. And the eager townspeople stared, and after a moment began to remark to each other, how fine are the emperor's new clothes. And no outfit that the emperor had ever worn had been such a complete success with the people. But just then there was a little child by the road who saw the emperor and said, but he hasn't got anything on. (laughs) Did you ever hear such prattle, said the father. But the boy's words were taken up and whispered quietly from one to another. Do you see what the child sees? He hasn't got anything on. The emperor has no clothes. And the whispers turned to chatter, and the chatter turned to laughter. And the king turned red and shivered because he knew that they were right. And nevertheless, the parade went on. This is a story that Hans Christian Andersen writes not for children. A story that speaks superbly to the modern age, written to prepare people like you and me for a time when we must be those children. Children who are unafraid to speak the truth. 
And so we turn now to consider this commandment and how it collides with our culture, a culture, as Moeller called it, of institutionalized dishonesty. There was a German noblewoman named Elizabeth Noel Neumann who worked for a time for the Nazi newspaper Das Reich and was involved in the Nazi propaganda. After the war, she reflected on her own behavior and what had happened in their country and how so many people, how could they be silent in light of the atrocities? And she came up with a social theory that's now discussed called the spiral of silence. This is what she said, people are afraid of isolation. All you have to do is convince people that a perceived majority has a certain strong opinion and then almost everyone else will prefer not to say the emperor has no clothes but remains silent, and not only silent. In one survey reported in the book, The Day That America Told the Truth, 98% of people say they tell lies so as not to offend others. This, was so, this is what was so remarkable about our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, the world hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. He was, as it were, the child who says the emperor has no clothes. This is the truth, and it cut to the heart. Well, if Pilate so many years ago cynically asked the question, what is truth? We consider how things have not improved in the 2,000 years since. The 2016 Oxford English Dictionary Word of the Year was post-truth. Post-truth. According to the dictionary's website, it means, quote, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to motion, you know, emotion and personal belief. Basically, feelings effectively replace facts. As in, we live in a post-truth era. At least five years ago, former President Bill Clinton said that, complaining that we are living in a that this is a post-truth era. Do you agree? Or does it depend on what the definition of is is? I don't know. Even he complained about the situation. A post-truth culture is what leads us to equate disagreement with hatred. Loving me means agreeing with me because feelings are more important than facts. And therefore, the truth will sound like hate if somebody hates the truth. Now, I don't mean to suggest that uh, this world, this culture, has anything new. We remember the very first uh, post-truth statement in the Bible at the fall of man, where the man spun the truth by blaming the woman and God for what had happened, right? This woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I ate. Okay, so there's nothing new. 
Nevertheless, uh, we, we do seem to be entering into a particularly post-truth age, and that is the observation of many, both inside the church and outside. Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, grew up in, under Stal- Stalinist Russia and suffered in the gulags. He wrote eight volumes exploring how Russia gave itself away to oppressive communism and what was the result of that. He was not a Christian when he started his journey, but he learned in the gulag why not only he needed God, but why his whole country needed God. And Solzhenitsyn wrote, we got here this genocidal people who killed millions of our own for one simple reason. It's the reason old men told me at the beginning of the communist revolution what the problem was. Men forgot God. So truth rises and falls with the ultimate truth teller and truth giver. If there is no objective truth today, it's because people think there is a no objective truth giver, truth knower. And if there is no truth out there somewhere, then it's no wonder that people don't believe that there is truth in here. The Russian grand chess master Garry Kasparov made an interesting statement. He said, the point of modern propaganda is not only to misinform or push an agenda, it is to exhaust your critical thinking so as to annihilate truth. And that is where we are, brothers and sisters, today. That we are exhausted in our critical thinking. Truth itself has suffered. And the current climate makes just trying to think through the issues of today an exhausting battle. Now, it's, it's, it's exhausting. It's frankly discouraging to turn on any news channel. If you don't watch the news, you are uninformed. But if you do watch the news, you are misinformed. That is our choice. Trust in the mainstream media has fallen to 32% in the USA. But then again, as, I, as you know, 67.2% of statistics are made up on the spot. In this climate, we need to become exceptionally dedicated to the truth and not believe what we hear from people whom we would otherwise trust. Since deception is everywhere, it's not a matter of people can be trusted, people cannot be trusted. People who ordinarily could be trusted have themselves often believed lies as well. I was very discouraged a uh, couple of weeks ago. I was listening to a Christian radio news program, uh, which was uh, uh, very uh, well regarded, and it played a clip of the Loudoun County um, uh, uh, Board of Education meeting. Some of you, I'm sure, uh, know much much more about this than I do. There was a uh, very raucous meeting now um, a month or two ago in which uh, a number of people showed up. There, it was rather loud. Several times there was a call for decorum. There was an eruption of applause after a particular former senator in Virginia had testified. And finally, uh, the gavel was brought down, and they declared that the meeting was at an end. It was just too raucous, and decorum was not being maintained. 
things got even worse at that point. A few people were arrested, and um, it uh, made the national news, our little state here. Well, I listened, as I say, to this Christian review of what had happened, and they played the clip in where the senator very excellently described the problem in the current transgender proposal and so forth, and they played the clip where the uh, uh, moderator declared the meeting adjourned since the place was out of order and there was no raucous part in the middle, giving the impression that when the man had said the truth, the school board would hear no more. Uh, I had earlier watched the YouTube on this, and so I had seen the whole thing that had, had gone on. And so here's a uh, popular Christian news commentator who, whether he was head of this clip or whether he worked on it himself, I do not know, but who pulled out the middle so that it sounded like that the, person, uh, the, the meeting was adjourned simply because the man had spoken the truth. Uh, I, I give, the, give this to you as an example how even those whom we would ordinarily trust need to be uh, verified. You, you'll know that we've had this major problem in the United States government, of course, uh, especially with the CDC in the last year or two. Um, that you know I've, I've uh, been loath to criticize. However, it, it was back in March of last year that the CDC was insisting that the science said that we do not need to have any facial coverings. And uh, in an article in Time magazine, the, they explained the CDC's recommendation. They uh, interviewed top elites from infectious disease departments of universities, wondering why people so anxious to protect themselves are putting on masks when the science says that these things do not help with such respiratory illnesses. Quote, it seems kind of intuitively obvious if you put something, whether a scarf or a mask, in front of your nose and mouth, that it will filter out some of the viruses that are floating around there, says Dr. William Schaffner, professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University, one of the finest departments in the world, by the way. The only problem, it's not likely to be effective against respiratory illnesses like the flu and COVID-19. If it were, the CDC would have recommended it years ago, he says. It doesn't because it makes science-based recommendations. And the article goes through to be able to show how the science says it doesn't help. Of course, that was the same month in which Dr. Fauci later reversed himself and says that the science does say that. Well, how can science say both things? How can it say the opposite thing? Well, Dr. Fauci says, I lied. And the country seemed to accept that. Except that I, having a PhD from Virginia Tech, I thought I knew how to do some research. I, I, I figured out uh, I, could, I could pull up some meta-studies of respiratory illnesses, of uh, previous coronaviruses, see what the journal, for example, of uh, nursing practitioners says, and it says that surgical masks and cloth masks are of zero value. N95 respirators properly fitted, worn throughout the whole shift, have been shown in a number of studies to be 50% effective. And so I realized, oh, I see. Science is actually 
more nuanced than the CDC reported the first time or the CDC reported the second time. That the elites in our country and our universities that said science says one thing and then science says the opposite were speaking out of both sides of their mouth. I'm not making any plea for face coverings or not face coverings, but the point of, the point of it simply is the people whom we used to be able to trust are, need to be verified. We ourselves are not very adept at doing our own research. We typically put in some Google searches, we find out what agrees with us, and we say, there, you see, we were right all along. We need to recognize that other people were probably right a good amount of the time as well. This national climate of distrust, where even the head of infectious diseases can simply say, I lied, and the country will accept it, even though he didn't lie. Bread conspiracy theories and our breeding conspiracy theories galore that everyone is lying and hiding some of the truth at the top levels. And so now, as one man says, we are the only country in the world where a significant portion of the population believes that professional wrestling is real, but the moon landing was faked. All right. This commandment strikes a fatal blow at rumors and exaggerations and the kind of sensationalizing that's so common in the press. And we need to be very hesitant before we declare that we know the truth. Because the truth is very hard to find these days. And one more comment about the controversy in Virginia I brought up this year as I realized that it's by no means over. I am hoping in this series to be able to give you something to be able to talk about with your coworker and neighbor and friend. This controversy over who's allowed in a woman's sports team and who's allowed in a woman's shower and so forth. Well, we have an old saying that if you call a tail a leg, how many legs does a dog have? If you call a, a tail a leg, how many legs does a dog have? The answer is four, because calling a leg a tail don't make it so. A tail a leg don't make it so. Okay. The pressure on us, nevertheless, to call a tail a leg is ramping up. And it's going to be very difficult, I know, for some of you. Uh, it already is difficult, I think, for some of you in your work environments. And just as Orwell said it would be, where they hold up four fingers, you remember, and they shock you unless you say it's five. We are called to speak the truth in love. And you might want to read the tragic article by James Shoup called, I was America's first non-binary person. It was all a sham. Poor James Shoup, not a Christian, believed all the counseling that he received. First, that he could transition to a woman and then escape the pain to become legally non-binary, which he won in court as America's first non-binary person. He was celebrated in the New York Times and encouraged by a host of doctors and so forth. He reached celebrity status in this country. And the poor man said, the best thing that could have happened to me would be for somebody to order intensive therapy. For he was in agony afterward and more confusion saying later in, in this article, again, I'll give to you, there's abundant online literature informing transgender people that their sex change isn't real. But when a licensed medical doctor writes you a letter essentially saying you were born in the wrong body and that a government agency or a court of law validates your delusion, you become damaged and confused. I certainly did. 
And then he said, it wasn't until I came out against the sterilization and mutilization of gender-confused children uh, in uh, 2017 that LGBT organizations stopped helping me. Most of the media retreated with them. I played my part in pushing forward this grand illusion. I am not the victim here. My wife, daughter, and the American taxpayers are. They are the real victims. Um, He has a very sad testimony. There was even a Newsweek article, uh, amazingly, by Scott Nugent. We need balance when it comes to gender dysphoric kids. I would know. He writes about the terrible stuff that happened to him, about the lack of understanding, about the lack of truth that happened in all the ways in which he had been encouraged. And he writes in that Newsweek article, here's what I could not comprehend before transitioning as a 40-year-old man, and what I honestly believe no child is capable of consenting to. Links here for all the studies. Decreased life expectancy, increased risk of premature death from heart attacks and pulmonary embolisms, bone damage, increased mental health complications, increased chances of mood syndrome symptoms, higher suicide rates, 12% higher chance than non-trans to develop symptoms of psychosis, chance of stunted brain development, much reduced chance for lifelong sexual pleasure, higher chance of sterility and infertility, so forth. Um, He writes, trans activists tout studies that say medically transitioning, gender-questioning children have improved mental health. These studies have often been retracted also with a link. And these retractions are underreported by the media. Um, This poor man uh, uh, likewise says there's abundant online literature, but... Uh, it's not being discussed. It can't be discussed. The truth has died. Well, George Orwell says that the further society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. In a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And some of us may have to become martyrs for the revolution and to be able to speak the truth to give the studies to understand that the people that have believed the lie are the greatest victims of all. Jesus says, men have loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And this is the appeal that the untruth is able to protect a sin. Now, what are we to do? And who are we to do it? When Isaiah saw the Lord lifted up in his glory, he cried out in despair, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is our struggle. This is our confession, too. Woe is me. Who am I? I'm only a man of unclean lips. But, of course, Isaiah's sin was purged in that encounter. The Lord has had taken it away. And then the Lord said, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? Isaiah's sin was purged, and this is our confidence as well. And so it is that we are called as the followers of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life to bear a witness 
even as Psalm 15 says, swearing to our own hurt. May the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable. In the sight of the Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And if the world hates us, Jesus says, you know that they hated me first.